Welcome to episode 200, 200, who would have thought it? Uh, frankly, if you'd listened to us the first few episodes, you would have thought that getting to 20 would, was going to be a strain. Um, and uh, frankly, if you listened to 199, you might have wondered whether we were going to make it to 200, but we did. This is episode 200 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our interview today is with Tim Moore, who's the co-director of the Cyber Policy Initiative uh, uh, at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the author of a new book, Cyber Mercenaries. Uh, um, we'll be talking to him after the news roundup. Uh, and for the roundup, we have Meredith Rathbone, who serves on Step. Executive Committee and uh, co-chairs uh, the firm's International Regula- Regulation and Compliance Group out of our London office, uh, and Nick Weaver, who's a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer in the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. And I, of course, am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and holder of a record for returning to step out of practice law more times than any other lawyer. We had to jump right in. I asked... Uh, Meredith to get on the uh, program uh, today because she does so much export control work and is in London uh, because there have been developments in the effort tied to Wassenaar but also tied to uh, the, the export control rules at uh, the EU to uh, walk back some of the really sweeping uh, rules that were adopted in an effort to keep uh, intrusion software out of the hands of governments we don't like. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the general view was that that was so sweeping that there would be thousands and thousands of licenses required. Um, and so there's been a, a real backlash and uh, some movement uh, in government. And I thought, Meredith, you could bring us up to date on where those rules are today. Happy to, and thank you for having me on the, the 200th uh, podcast. I'm glad to be here. So the, we'll, why don't we start with Wassenaar, and then we'll move on to the EU's dual-use controls. Okay. Uh, because they're somewhat overlapping, but a bit different. So on Wassenaar, we're, we're now at Wassenaar round three. Uh, we, you know, have taken to, to calling our Wassenaar rounds, uh, giving them uh, – Numbers like we do with Rocky movies, but uh, but anyway, round three with respect to intrusion software, and this was uh, originally agreed in 2003, and after industry, particularly in the U.S., uh, looked at the language and realized that it was much much broader than uh, than even we think the um, countries who agreed to the language thought it was. Uh, the industry pushed, and the U.S. government agreed to take it back in 2016, where some modest changes came out, uh, and industry kept pushing, and the U.S. government took this back to Wassenaar in 2017, so that was round three. And uh, some more significant changes came out of that round, not as many, I think, as industry would have liked to have seen, but um, changes. Uh, the main changes related to te- technology, the technology aspect of the controls, uh, which carved out from the scope of the controls, vulnerability disclosure, and cyber incident response. So that, I think, is is huge for not just industry, but people who rely on industry to protect their systems. Um, you know, those uh, the technology controls still aren't perfect. The, the definition of cyber incident response, for example, might be limiting. So that's stuff that industry is still looking into. But that was a big change. So you don't, you don't, you, the, the, uh, the, the point there, the was, point there being that uh, you don't want to be telling customers who rely on you for security something really bad happened, and as soon as I have a license, I'll tell you what it is. Because uh, right, uh, exactly. Yeah, in four to six weeks, we, we should be able to come in and uh, help you fix that problem. Um, so, yeah, that so uh, the technology controls have been um, improved. The controls also cover software and hardware. The, the hardware controls weren't changed, and I think industry thinks that's a problem with respect to things like security testing systems, pen testing systems. The software controls carved out software updates and upgrades, but didn't carve out security testing software. 
so that's another issue that industry in the U.S. at least is still quite concerned about. Um, most WACNAR member states will implement these controls, uh, these revisions to the controls right away. The U.S. government, as most people probably recall, didn't implement the original controls. It's, it's held out, and uh, it won't implement these controls either. A bunch of controls were passed, uh, changes to the WACNAR controls were passed in December. Most of those governments typically implement immediately, including the U.S. government. And basically, the U.S. government has said, look, we're going to implement everything except for these cyber controls, which we're going to take more time to look at. So uh, so that's where we are. We, we don't know yet whether the U.S. government is going to uh, try to go back and get further changes on these in 2018. It may be that they take a year to, to review them and get input from industry and others and then decide what to do in 2019. I predict it'll take the entire so Trump administration to, to review these, but uh, I could be wrong. <laughs> That's it's possible. Um, but, you know, who knows? That could only be another year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, politics rears its head. Uh, what about the EU? <laughs> okay. So on the EU side, uh, the, uh, kind of uh, simultaneously uh, with these Lochner controls uh, changing every year, the, the EU um, – uh, the European Commission proposed what they called a recast of their EU dual-use regulation in 2016, and their dual-use regulation implements Wassenaar controls, among other multilateral controls. Um, and the, the Commission uh, proposed this. It went from the Commission to the European Parliament and to the Parliament's uh, INSA committee, their International Trade Committee, which, which took quite some time to look at them, sought input from stakeholders, and proposed some significant revisions. Um, the, the revisions related to various things, and I'll just highlight a couple of these. Um, and by the way, for anybody who follows export controls, there are lots and lots of interesting things going on in this recast. Uh, so if you haven't been following it, you should. But I'll, I'll stay focused on a couple of small things here. Um, one is uh, the intrusion software controls. They did a couple of things with those. Uh, one is they have proposed modifying the definition to focus more on intent and consent, uh, you know, intent to actually go in and do bad things um, and consent from the owners or administrators of the system. Uh, and this is something that industry has been arguing for at Wassenaar and has been getting pushback on, but the fact that the, uh, the parliament has proposed uh, changes along those lines, I think, gives a lot of people hope that maybe similar changes can be accomplished at Wassenaar. That's very, that's a big deal. Isn't that, that's a pretty big it's deal. It's a very big deal. Uh, yeah. uh, but it, it goes against um, the theology of export controls, which is that you ought to be able to look at the thing and know whether it's controlled. And, and the problem is uh, these are things that uh, uh, could have very good or very bad uses depending on intent. And it sounds like they've They've sort of given up on the theology in, in, in an effort to restrict the otherwise overbroad uh, impact of the of the reg. That that's exactly right, and and it is a big deal and a change from the way things are normally done in these uh, control regimes. So, uh, so the, the other thing with respect to intrusion software specifically that the committee, the Inter Committee, proposed and Parliament passed was carving out security testing. Uh, which, as I just mentioned, is something that didn't quite entirely make its way out of uh, the recent Wachner revision. Well, that's good. So I mean, it's um, good that it is uh, subject to active debate right now in the EU. Yeah, because sure. that's going to it's bound to uh, roll over into into Wassenaar. So progress, maybe not as much as we'd like, uh, uh, but um, even the European um, uh, do-gooders are realizing they may have bitten off more than they can chew here and looking for some way to cut back on the impact. That's right. And I'm going to flag a couple of other things really quickly here that have that have been taking place as part of this recast. Uh, second thing is that the parliament has, uh, has kind of taken a position in the encryption debate and they are pro deregulation. 
Um, they have stopped short of proposing complete deregulation of uh, encryption items, but uh, clearly they view that as the future. So that will continue on uh, to continue to, way, to work its way through the, the EU process, but uh, the Parliament, at least, is, is pushing in the direction of deregulation. Um, so that's uh, another interesting development. Um, they, uh, you know, the, as part of this recast, there have been proposals to control other types of cyber uh, related items and to have for, for intrusion software and these other types of things, uh, kind of some broad catch-all controls where uh, the exporter has reason to suspect that they may be used for committing human rights violations. Industry has raised some significant concerns about those and, you know, complained that the, the kind of policing burden is being put on industry rather than on the government to identify who the human rights violators are and what a human rights violation is. Yeah, the last time I looked, you the, could use it. If, if we had if we had phone books still, you could use them for human rights violations. That was uh, a favorite method of torturing people. You hit them with a uh, phone book, and it doesn't doesn't show up as a uh, bruise on their skin, but it uh, it really hurts. So yeah, it would be it would be an awkward uh, thing to try to regulate. It's, it is, and so you know, there, the uh, Parliament's proposal has started to try to put some parameters around that. I don't think it's anywhere near uh, satisfying industry, uh, but it's you know, it's getting there at least something that they're considering. Uh, and then the, the last thing that I'll mention about uh, the EU dual abuse regime that's, that's been proposed is there are some significant. There's been some significant language put in there to try to prevent form shopping um, by exporters, you know, going to certain countries that they know are more likely to grant export licenses. So they've uh, started talking about implementing uniform criteria for granting licenses, having uniform penalties, and perhaps most importantly to, uh, to a lot of people requiring governments to publish, uh, quote-unquote, meaningful information about the licenses that they grant. So we'll see where that goes. This is, the, yeah. So that it's not something that's um, that's done in most countries at present. Some countries do it, but most don't. Um, this has uh, a ways to go. So, as I mentioned uh, in the EU, this is proposed by the Commission. The Parliament has has passed its uh, proposed revisions. Uh, now it has to go to this trialogue process. So, so now we have. Um, the European Council getting involved. And the current uh, council presidency is held by Bulgaria. They've got it through uh, the middle of the year. And then in July, Austria takes over. It's a six-month rotation. Bulgaria has said this isn't something they're really interested in taking up. And so everybody thinks that it's basically just going to kind of be frozen until July. And then we'll see if Austria wants to uh, pick up the pen on this and engage. Well, for a combination of self-righteousness and uh, uh, hostility to uh, technology, you can't beat Austria usually. So uh, uh, I'm not I'm not looking for a lot of help from the Austrian presidency. Um, let me let me uh, switch gears uh, because uh, and I'll just ask Nick on this one. There's all there was a whole bunch of stories. It was a really long story about. Uh, uh, kind of the inside story or purported to be the inside story of how Kaspersky got effectively taken over by the um, uh, uh, Russian FSB. At least that's how it's presented. Uh, and then another story about how uh, uh, the um, plucky little Dutch hacking intelligence uh, agency broke into a bunch of uh, 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 attack uh, computers uh, being used by the FSB and were able to watch a number of the attacks, including, I think, the DNC. Um, a, a, a Nick, um, what did you make of those stories? Was there something new in there, and did you find them plausible? Um, I found the uh, BuzzFeed story Actually, no, but BuzzFeed Medusa story. And since it was Medusa on Russian reporting, it's very credible on the uh, basic takeover of Kaspersky. Very interesting um, because it shows 
a or paints a picture of basically a criminal state. And that, yeah, I mean, Kaspersky's son is kidnapped taking- and uh, held, and then just conveniently the FSB is able to rescue him. And you kind of think, you know, maybe they could rescue him because they were holding him, and uh, that was the beginning of their demonstrating to him that he had to do what they wanted to do. Yep, because the problem is, is any sort of legal process type system would be tr- effectively destroying the company. That this is why Silicon Valley worried so much about 702 is it makes them be untrusted to the rest of the world. This is basically that magnified by a hundred. You basically, unless you're in Russia, you cannot trust Kaspersky software. You never could anyway, but it's now effectively official. So are you saying that, that really the, the, the CIA should just kidnap Chan Zuckerberg instead of serving 702s and we'd all be better off? No, um, <laughs> but if uh, the worry is the NSA coming up to a U.S. company with an offer they can't refuse, the same must be done to thinking about Russian companies. Well, don't Chinese you think Yeah, and- this was always obvious uh, and yet, uh, obviously, if you're a, a tech company and a cybersecurity company, you, you would prefer that not people not focus on that obvious fact, and you'd like to say, no, no, we should be treated uh, as Switzerland, to, to, to quote Microsoft, uh, um, and and we should be above all this petty espionage business. Uh, um, and that was never completely plausible, but uh, there's, a, there's another story that kind of suggests that uh, there are still people trying to work that, and it's not going to work out. Apparently, some, uh, there's a suggestion that uh, uh, some other uh, uh, security companies, McAfee, Symantec, if I remember right, are being accused of having let the Russians review their source code, uh, uh, nominally, of course, to see if there are back doors in it, but uh, uh, maybe hoping that there are some back doors that are or could be put in it. Uh, I, and again, the effort to build trust is, is going to end up uh, costing them elsewhere. I think, to be honest, we are looking at a future world of four separate tech ecologies, since, uh, uh, especially since uh, the UK decided to go all Brexit on things. Mm-hmm. The first is China. The second is Russia, the third is Five Eyes, and the fourth is EU. And so when you're in any one of those environments, you go local, and it's not just hardware, software, but services, as we'll get to in a moment with this uh, lovely fitness tracking data. Um, And you basically, if you're outside one of those four camps, you decide which one of the four camps you're willing to risk exposure to versus cost of software and make your decisions from there. But don't you think first the, the the Russians bring to the table the clout, the economic clout of Belgium, uh, and it's, that's just not a sustainable ecosystem for people who want to make money. Uh, you'd be better off uh, in India, and and I think the EU probably brings relatively little technical capability to this as well at least their 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 tech i think the eu actually brings a lot do you uh, 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 you you think there are a lot of good software companies in in uh, in europe and once you got past sap what do you got so like the quip is on the antivirus side is um that uh if your adversary is the nsa you go with kaspersky if your adversary is the FSB, you go with Symantec. If your adversary is both, you actually go with F-Secure. <laughs> the Finns uh, 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 soaking up the uh, uh, the market. I, I, you're, yes, I, I just uh, you know they that's a that's a security product, and maybe they can turn that into a whole security suite uh, and uh, uh, and make a fair amount of money. Uh, they, um, I'm I'm a little skeptical. All right, um, 
let's I, I want to before Meredith leaves, I want to ask her about another kind of form shopping uh, issue. Uh, um, Schrems, uh, Maximilian Schrems, who's been bringing uh, cases against Facebook for his entire adult life, uh, um, decided to that he could actually um, sue them in Ireland and in Austria. He wanted to sue them in Austria, uh, where he thought he would, uh, for the reasons I stated earlier, have a better uh, uh, reception. Um, and uh, Facebook said, not so fast. Uh, uh, he's not protected by the European law that allows consumers to sue in their home country. Um, and the ECJ kind of split the baby, as I read it. Uh, is that right, uh, Meredith? Yeah, basically. So this is, uh, this was kind of, there are two parts to this, uh, decision. One was a venue and jurisdictional claim. Do Austrian courts have, uh, jurisdiction to, uh, to, to rule on this case? Is that the right venue to bring the case? Um, and on that, uh, Facebook, uh, said, look, he's not really a consumer. He used his Facebook page for professional purposes and, you know, this consumer law is really intended to protect, you know, David against Goliath. It's not intended to protect, you know, two kind of businesses against each other for lack of a... And can, can I say, can I say, I thought that was a remarkably clever, although probably doomed argument, because they're basically saying, you've, you've turned suing Facebook into your profession, uh, you've brought you and and uh, and that means that you're no longer a consumer, and so you can no longer sue Facebook as a consumer. I, I, it it was deeply clever, but I I didn't think it had much of a shot, and it apparently didn't. Well, yeah, the ECJ agrees with you on that, uh, and and basically has allowed him to continue on with this case in in Austria. Uh, in uh, the other half of the case relates. To uh, class action, so he got 25,000 uh, other people to assign their claims to him, uh, and so he wanted to bring this case and did bring this case in Austria uh, on behalf of himself and you know his 25,000 best friends. Uh, and that part of uh, the decision, the ECJ um, is said, no, you can't do that. Those those claims are not assignable. Uh, under under this law, or at least you're, you so, ain't a consumer if you're uh, if you're basically bringing twenty five thousand claims uh, and hoping to, to 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 collect a little bit for each one of them. Right. Yep. So uh, so in short, uh, you know, they both kind of get to claim victory. He still gets to have his day in court in Austria uh, regarding Facebook's data privacy practices, and um, Facebook has successfully fought back class action claim. Okay. The the last uh, uh, story I want to talk about uh, with Nick is just just broke uh, late last night, uh, but uh, it is, you know, it would be funny if it didn't hurt so much, Uh, uh, but there are a bunch of cloud services that collect uh, um, exercise data, and apparently it's publicly available, anonymized, but publicly available. Unfortunately, uh, when they release the maps of people's exercise uh, runs and where they're doing their uh, a lot of exercise, um, it reveals a surprising amount uh, about uh, uh, government activities, among other things. Nick? Yes, um, and fortunately, this is a U.S. company in this particular case. So what happened is there's this social network for running, uh, and they basically published a heat map of the entire world. So you could see anonymous people's traces. But that, of course, tells you a huge amount of things. So like if you see people running in circles around a perimeter of something in the middle of the Afghanistan, oh, that's a secret U.S. base. Um, <laughs> and certainly. it isn't just the U.S. It isn't just the U.S. It's uh, Russian bases, uh, Taiwanese bases. So Jeffrey Lewis used this to track parts of the Taiwanese missile program. And you can actually, there's a weakness that allows you to actually extract individual people. So you can go, oh, this runner works at the NSA. Oh, my God. Um, 
And the thing is, is this is actually not the first case of this. There's Google's basically been doing this for everybody. Android phones are a security nightmare because there's all these third-party services doing it. This company just had the unfortunateness to make it public. But there's basically all these data sources of people's movements that in bulk tell you so much information. Like, here's one thing. You look at cell phone movements and you see where they turn off. Oh, those are your high security facilities. Where, where they're not allowed to bring their, uh, their phone in the or their Fitbit in. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. God. No. Um, and to be honest, um, this is the sort of bulk data that 702 is designed to collect. And if the National Reconnaissance Office doesn't immediately spin up, if they haven't already, a bulk 702 section where they try to get the data for things like from Google, from ad networks, from um, from this, intersect it with geospatial data, both from their own satellites and just ones that you can purchase online, they're not doing their job because this data alone with the clunky interface of just looking at on the web page has allowed people like Jeffrey Lewis to find out all sorts of secret bases. Just imagine what you could do with the data in raw form from multiple feeds with timestamp information cross-referenced to data images captured from both yours and public satellite constellations. Well, there it is. For, for governments all around the world, this is, in bodlerized form, the oh, shoot bit. Yep. Oh, God. Okay, yep. Uh, and and just this is just the beginning, and it just happens that this is an IoT um, ecosystem that U.S. companies are big in. Uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of them, and uh, uh, drone footage is the first, uh, where it's an entirely Chinese ecosystem, and we're just riding on it, uh, and people are having a fine time uh, collecting footage uh, and have no idea what can be done with it when once it gets back to, uh, uh, to the uh, Chinese cloud. Especially because data sets like this, it's not individual privacy that matters. It's the aggregate. A standard user actually has no way of saying whether the privacy policy is meaningful because it's how things look in aggregate on this. And so it's basically Silicon Valley abdication of responsibility in a collected all methodology that would frankly make the NSA blush. Um, (laughs) Yes. Just simply now seeing the results. Yep. Well, we'll just see if it if it costs them anything. Uh, it, it it could cost them in places that have more self confident governments than than ours. Uh, uh, China, Israel, places like that. Uh, maybe even Taiwan. Well, for the U.S. government, it's actually a good thing. And uh, the reason why is you just get them to take down their public interface and then grab all that data under 702 and start mucking with it, merging it with the NRO. You could do so much with that data plus publicly available satellite information. So everything on it is classified clean because this is commercial data plus commercial data. You could have huge reconnaissance resources this way without even needing cleared personnel because none of the raw data going in is classified. So for you intelligence Community listeners, and I know you're out there, right? Uh, um, you know, you don't always uh, uh, come to the Cyber Law Podcast for professional tips on new intelligence sources, but uh, this is a good one. And and while you're in there, you could probably tell them uh, uh, which areas they need to blur so that uh, other intelligence uh, agencies can't get the same benefit. Uh, it's a it's a great twofer. Uh, no, because. Because uh, blurring the data on one stream tells everybody else, hey, this is interesting. So they access another stream where you don't have the blurring capability. So never blur a thing. <laughs> blurring a thing is a great way to put a neon sign saying, secret base here hidden under the fake forest on Google Maps. All right. Let's go over it with a different satellite. <laughs> 
Okay, you're right. Uh, uh, my uh, tradecraft needs an update. Uh, uh, anything else? Uh, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stories that I don't think we're going to get to. Uh, U.S. now uh, is discovering that a- that ATMs can be jackpotted and uh, stripped of all their money if the hackers attack them properly. Uh, that's always been true in other countries. Uh, this is just coming to the U.S. late, as I understand it. Yep, and to be honest, I think it's for people for bad guys who don't want to repeat that scene from Breaking Bad. Which scene was that? I, I didn't see all of it. The one where the two drug users stole the ATM. Oh, I did see that one. Oh, that's, oh that was awful. Apart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, I, the lesson I drew was never mouth off to your drug addict uh, a common law wife while your head is underneath a propped up ATM. But uh, uh, we all draw different uh, uh, conclusions from watching that show. All right. Uh, on to uh, uh, our uh, interview with Tim Moore. Tim has been on the show before. This is his second appearance, so he gets a mug, uh, uh, which we'll give at the end. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Tim has has been in a lot of different policymaking roles, mainly in the think tank world, is what I would say. Uh, uh, and he currently is co-directing the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, uh, he's written for Foreign Policy and the Washington Post and Time Magazine and Jane's Intelligence Review and on and on and on. Uh, and we're going to be talking about his new book, uh, Cyber Mercenaries, the State Hackers and Power, put up by, out by Cambridge University Press. Uh, I, the, uh, I guess I'll just ask an inside baseball question. Uh, how hard was it to pick the subtitle? <laughs> well, the subtitle was actually the easier part. Uh, the, the main title was the one where I had initially proposed cyber proxies, and then the marketing department... Oh, and department, they, they, they threw up on it, right? it, it. It wasn't as sexy enough for the marketing department. Okay, so, uh, so, that's, uh, so, so the, the subtitle is where you redeemed your academic self-respect. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I think uh, it's not unfair to call them cyber mercenaries. You'd probably say cyber mercenaries are a subset of the proxies that uh, governments use. Uh, so this is a book about proxies in cyberspace used to attack, collect intelligence, uh, and maybe do uh, information operations. That's right. That's right. And all right. What's the thesis? Well, um, first of all, I wanted to congratulate you on the ton- 200th episode of this podcast. Isn't this it's cool? A <laughs> um, and to answer your question, so when I started this book five years ago, we were in the midst of the cyber war debate and whether cyber war will take place or not. And talking to folks both in the hacking community but also in the law enforcement community, something seemed off because on the one hand, I think the cyber war discussion was really important to draw attention to this topic for senior policymakers to pay attention to cybersecurity. But it also had the side effect that people thought about this through the lens of war, which is incredibly state-centric, interstate-centric, um, and there was clearly something else going on. So the main thesis of yeah, the book... It's sort of, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say it's like, it's Hobbesian. It's the war of all against all, nasty, brutish, and long. <laughs> well, exactly. And that, that's part of the argument of the book, that um, we can't just focus on, on states as the, the main actors here, and that we need to pay a lot more attention to non-state hackers and how they are used by states to project power. So this is your effort to kind of dive into... Uh, how um, states are using hackers to achieve their ends. Exactly. And, and, and so how are they? What, what, what did you find? <laughs> well, um, it was, it's been a journey the last five years, and it's been interesting to see how states have very different models for how they rely on non-state hackers. And I think from a, from a policy perspective, that's interesting because it raises questions of control of the non-state ac- uh, hacker and to what extent, um, as part of the political game that's being played and in, in times of conflict, what is the risk that non-state actors might go rogue or that we cannot rely that a state actually is, is um, exercising effective control o- over these uh, non-state hackers. Um, and there is a pretty wide spread in terms of how I think uh, the risk 
uh, calculus and risk appetite among different governments. The case studies in the book range from Iran and Syria to Russia over to how China, I think, over the last 20 years um, has changed its approach and Beijing increasingly tightening its grip on, on non-state hackers and proxies. Well, and everything else. And, and everything else, that's true. <laughs> There's a common thread here. Um, and what I also found fascinating, and I mean, this is now in the midst of the debate here in the U.S., is as I started talking to folks, and I was traveling around the world as for this book from Ukraine to Israel to China, Mongolia, South Korea, France, UK, I remember a conversation I wait had. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Mongolia? <laughs> Mongolia has proxy actors? <laughs> <laughs> Mongolia does not have, uh, well, Mongolia has hackers, and Mongolia has uh, a friendly relationship with North Korea. Uh, um, okay. I was the host of the Freedom Online Coalition Conference a couple of years right. ago, which which took me there. We can talk more about that if you want. Um, but um, I remember a, a conversation distinctly in Ukraine, which was I went to Kiev twice in 2015. So we were about a year into the conflict in Ukraine. And I had traveled there because I wanted to figure out to what extent the criminal actors had become politicized as part of the conflict and whether they had joined as a proxy for either side of, of the conflict and ask people about critical infrastructure and the risk of hackers taking down part of the critical infrastructure. And people pushed back against that and very quickly moved to information operations and suggesting that they were much more concerned about uh, the use of social media and fake information as part of the overall of, of the overall project. And while my book remains focused on hacking, per se, rather than this, the, the, the information piece, it quickly became clear that many other governments think about this space and think about cybersecurity very differently than we do. Um, and they use proxies differently as well. They use proxies not only to hack foreign companies or foreign governments to spy on them. They also use these proxies to spy on dissidents, both at home and abroad, right. because they – for be it Tehran or Beijing, their overriding concern is regime stability. Um, so the, the, they use these non-state hackers for a very broad range of, of, um, of purposes. And I thought that was a, another point that I wanted to highlight in the book that we might have to start thinking a little bit more uh, innovatively, innovatively about how other governments uh, think about this space and how, what the implications yeah, if you, are. If, if you'd only written that book in two, t- 2015, <laughs> right. you know, you'd be on all the talk shows now. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> As you know, in this space, things uh, uh, move so fast that I was glad that uh, cyber is still an issue. And you we finally moved on cranked it out, yes. Uh, and somebody paid you to go to all these things, or, or were you just uh, sort of patching the book together as you did the other policy work? It was the latter. So I was uh, fortunate enough that I was able to go to different conferences as part of my other work that was more policy-focused. And then when I would go, for example, to the Tel Aviv cybersecurity conference that takes place every June, I would add a couple of days to meet with uh, folks on the ground. Um, I went to Mongolia because of the Freedom Online Coalition meeting there and met with folks from the computer emergency response team. Um, I went to South Korea back in 2013 as part of their big global conference on cyberspace. And that was actually because I was interested whether North Korea was using proxy actors. Um, and as you notice in the book, North Korea is not a case study because both people in South Korea, from the police to the national security community experts to experts in the U.S., all more or less confirmed what the literature had been saying by threat intelligence companies, that North Korea uses its own employees that might be operating from other countries because North Korea doesn't have very good internet access. Um, But it's not the case that there are these hacker groups that are kind of detached from the state and that Pyongyang will then rely on. What I'm surprised by is that they aren't turning them into proxies. They say, oh, well, you know, you want to hack somebody? We got people, you know, we'll do it uh, from six to eight in the evening. Uh, you pay us uh, and then we turn our uh, uh, hacking uh, tools and uh, uh, teams into money-making enterprises, which, of course, uh, is a high priority for the regime. Yeah, and it'll be fascinating to see how this... Uh, I Not think that I'm give, uh, I, I want to encourage that, but <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I hard to believe we won't see it. <laughs> True. And I think there are some really interesting um, issues on the horizon that might give us some headaches down the road where if we look back, and 
you know this better than I do, the evolution alone in the last five years, I think, has been breathtaking. And if, if we look at the various incidents that have made headlines in the U.S., I think a lot of people were surprised by how quickly Iran developed its capabilities, which I think is partly because they were tapping various non-state hackers. Um, the, the people that I mentioned in the indictment that I discussed in the book are uh, these four mid four Iranians in their mid-20s um, who, once they joined this other team, all of a sudden helped really amplify the DDoS attacks targeting U.S. financial institutions. Um, so I think in the last five years alone, we've already seen how states have developed their capabilities much more rapidly than I think many expected. And if we now take the testimony by James Clapper, who says we have more than 30 countries that are pursuing offensive capabilities, that's still less than a, a quarter of the world states that are out there. So if we look at the next five years, I think the, to what extent North Korea might uh, provide its services to others, um, to what extent we'll see more hackers move to third countries to operate out of third territories if uh, attribution continues to become better and and they are trying to find new ways to further hide their, their, the source of the, the malicious activity. I think there's some interesting pieces. So I, it, it seemed to me you, you spend some time um, doing what I would think of as kind of poli-sciing this, categorizing <laughs> it and, uh, uh, and, and the like. Uh, and then you tell the stories of a bunch of different countries and the differences between their relationship to uh, uh, the uh, uh, the proxies that they're using. Um, and you've sort of started on this. Why don't we do a quick tour of the horizon? Who uses proxies how? Uh, and the obvious one, which, you know, actually I think probably the U.S. government would say we don't use proxies, but of course they, they have contractors and they're deeply dependent on contractors to carry out a lot of their more sophisticated attacks. It's just that they have integrated those contractors deeply into a structure that is uh, quite governmental, uh, and uh, uh, it would be hard, you'd be hard-pressed walking through some of the uh, cyber command operations uh, to tell who's a contractor and who's not. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I like the, the term you use, uh, policying it, <laughs> uh, because I think some people might might be confused why I call contractors here in the U.S. as, as proxies. Uh, what I was trying to do with the book, and I'll walk you through the various um, states and country, case studies that I'm looking at, is, so first the the approach to this was looking at this from the angle of, okay, this is part of politics, this might be part of conflict, uh, this is driven by states, but they are using these non-state hack actors, and ultimately, we want states to have tight control over these non-state hackers, so we know that the, the actions they are carrying out are actually being uh, following instructions from capital so that we know what actions we can take in response. So the ideal scenario is that we get states to tighten their grip as much as possible so that as part of the broader conflict... There's this, this is certainly U.S. policy, and this is what we did to the Chinese. We said, you know, we're going to start indicting these guys. You've got to get better control, and they actually did. So we, we count that a, a victory for American policy. Exactly. And, and that's kind of how I structured these case studies by first starting with um, the U.S. US as a case study for private security contractors, which in my mind are the example where we have the, the, the country with the tightest leash on its, its contractors, because as you said, they actually literally sit physically next to the, their, their masters and their, their principals. Um, and then I move over, and you see in the US that the rise of the private security contractors over the last 20 to 30 years is extending into the realm of cybersecurity and back in the day, information security, where you now have the large defense contractors that have in-house units that focus specifically on this, that openly advertise some of not only defensive but offensive uh, um, services and products um, to much smaller boutique firms. Because as you know, in this space, it's much more about how smart you are rather than whether you have a multi-ton kind of equipment. Um, so you've seen this evolution in the last uh, 15, 20 years of these contractors contractors extending into into this space to the extent that Peter Singer in his book Corporate Warriors in 2003 mm -hmm. kind of uh, talks about it and discusses it already. And then um, I looked at the next example being Iran and Syria for what I call orchestration, where you no longer have this delegation model of a very tight relationship, principal agent theory, but you have more politically driven hackers who work with the state 
aren't necessarily embedded and physically directly tied to them, but they're working closely hand in hand. And so have for a patriotic and ideological reasons, they want to do this. And the state says, well, if you want to do this, we, we're happy to do it as long as you're doing it to our enemies. I, and uh, here are some things that we'd like you to be doing. Exactly. And it might, they might, they're also getting benefits, right? Like um, I think in the Iranian case with regards to the military service and whether some of that activity might count toward that. And, and uh, I think there are yeah, – s- probably, probably beats walking through a minefield to set up the mines. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have another anecdote that we might – talk about that later but um uh, yeah so the the iranian case i think is interesting because you you see a regime and you see a state that already for historic historically has taken a very different approach to this um and the indictment that came out was a was a godsend for this book because uh, um it provided empirical data that i was able to use um i think i was at the beginning of the book slightly more optimistic how much material i would be able to use from interviews because most interviewees <laughs> kind of uh, did not want me to use it on the record right. so um, um I, I i was glad to see these indictments yeah you really you, you really mine those uh, indictments uh, um in ways that uh, I I had looked at them, but just scanned them, and you really dig deep into them. And I, I, I it was quite interesting the way you suggest that the Iranians, if I remember, your your thesis is that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard had this kind of crappy uh, uh, DDoS capability and, and website defacement. You know, basically tagging uh, uh, websites uh, was dumb. Uh, and then four or five people from the private sector come in and say, we can show you how to do this right, and they actually start causing real pain to uh, American banks. Yeah, and um, I think there was a New York Times article at the time who described this change that it turned the DDoS attacks from a few yapping uh, chihuahuas into fire gasping gorillas, um, <laughs> which I think put it quite uh, quite well. Um, and it's actually this is a this part of the book is a fascinating story for how the different pieces of my research came together because I went to Europe uh, in the first or second year of the book. I met with the head of a cybercrime unit in a European country and asked him, so I'm doing this research, where would you point me to? This was in an initial phase where I was trying to scope what potential case studies might look like. And he actively encouraged me to look at some of the hacker forums. Uh, he went a little, he suggested things that I didn't quite feel comfortable with in terms of uh, trying to gain the trust of several hacker groups to then be invited to some of the clothes of underground forests. I thought that was taking a little too far uh, um, for where I currently stand and not inviting any potential retribution from the, from it, the it, would, it, would, it would make you an intelligence community proxy if you wanted. <laughs> um, but I did end up uh, looking at several hacker forums that through some digging, are accessible, and looked at the indictments. And the indictments of the Iranian hackers mentioned several of their hacker pseudonyms. And when I looked on one of the hacker forums, uh, Zone H, where hacktivists post their web defacements mm-hmm. to boast about their successes, I found that um, several of them had been publicly boasting about their web defacements on this website up until t- uh, the spring of 2012, which was only a few months before they, according to the, the indictment, had joined ranks with these three others targeting uh, U.S. financial institutions. So the Iranians must have gone looking in the same place you went just uh, several <laughs> years earlier. <laughs> I'd love to find out. Uh, we, we'll see. if. Uh, so uh, my memory is th- the time when those of us in this field s- suddenly said, wow, the Iranians might actually be good at this, is when they um, hacked DigiNotar, stole mm-hmm. a bunch of, uh, or actually signed a bunch of uh, um, uh, domains that allowed the Iranian state to do man-in-the-middle attacks on people who were going to Facebook and Google and, and the like. Uh, uh, that was even earlier. That was like 2011, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that's a, a great example for revealing how uh, how Tehran thinks about this space already because as you uh, with the theft of the uh, the certificate um, you could the Tehran was clearly targeting more dissidents and what are considered to be threats to regime to the regime rather than going after critical infrastructure and retaliation for Stuxnet um, and Komodo the hacker who was mm-hmm. uh, claimed credit for that for the hack I think is an interesting uh, worth a discussion whether that to what extent that was a proxy or government uh, employee as such I'm, 
we don't know to, to date, but I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't really somebody who was within the, it, the well, government. You, might, you think it might actually have been they, – they were using their best hackers to do stuff like that, <clears throat> uh, the, the people on salary, essentially. Uh, yeah, and, and it may be it's uh, – it strikes me, but this may be just uh, uh, my bias – as hard to get um, the digerati excited about the goal of more man-in-the-middle attacks on other Iranian nationals. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe that is a patriotic duty in Iran. To, to, be, uh, to be discovered in the future, I think. Okay, so, I so there – I mean, the Iranians have an enormous population. I forget what it is. It's 65 million, something like that. Uh, uh, so you'd expect – they've got plenty of people and they're well-educated. Uh, uh, you'd expect them to be – to have a substantial number of uh, folks that they could turn to this. The Syrians, not so much. Uh, uh, how did – and – uh, appealing to Syrian patriotism on behalf of the Assad regime is, uh, you know, calculated to inspire maybe 25% of Syria's already pretty small population. Uh, uh, how does, how, how does orchestration occur in that kind of constrained environment? Yeah, th- um, that's a great question. And actually, I think Syria is really interesting because we saw uh, the evolution of the Syrian electronic army in parallel with the conflict and the deteriorating security environment on the ground in, in Syria, where initially the Syrian electronic army, where you've had the, the discussion about um, the, the relationship between Assad and the Syrian electronic army and, and the origins of how that all emerged. Um, and and over the time of the conflict, the Syrian electronic army changed and evolved to the extent that I think three years into the conflict, um, Experts concluded that it had shifted and was no longer really, if tied to the government in the first place, no longer really tied because the situation on the ground had gotten so bad that I think the the people who were involved at one point probably had other worries uh, at at that point in time. And you saw this with the, again, the indictment that came out of the three members of the Syrian Electronic Army, uh, two of which were in Syria, one of whom was in Germany. and I think what you saw was you still had this group that remained involved for a period of time, but this orchestration, orchestr- this orchestration framework that we had at the beginning more and more dissolved into an autonomous group that I think tried to keep the, the spirit alive, but wasn't as, as tied to what was going on before. Okay. Um, while we're doing the tour of the horizon, Israel, which strikes me as a place where top-down control, U.S. traditions, a strong military tradition would have pushed them in the direction of delegation, um, and yet they've also built this very strong cybersecurity uh, private sector. Uh, how how are they handling the need for proxies in this area? Israel is fascinating. Um, I didn't include it specifically as a case study in the book, um, but I think it's a really interesting model that they developed. Um, the, I remember, the, I think it was the dean of um, Ben-Gurion University who gave a presentation in Beersheba, where the Israeli government is trying to build this new ecosystem that brings together the government with the private sector and really create an, uh, a cluster of excellence around cybersecurity. And, and the way she phrased it was that they were trying to create an environment of co-opetition mm-hmm. between the government and the private sector, which was this melange of uh, cooperation and competition. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I thought it was a very smart way for how the Israeli government is thinking about it. It's a small country, obviously. The numbers are much smaller than if we're talking about the U.S. and the bureaucracy here. But it's clear that the Israeli government and state is pursuing a very close relationship between both government and and the private sector to the extent that they're moving all of the intelligence units into Beersheba, hoping that people who will have to spend three years in Beersheba as part of their service will then take root in the region. And then you have venture capitalists who have also been encouraged to set up shop uh, in Beersheba, working with Ben-Gurion University to create this ecosystem for people once they leave the service to then so, launch new startups. So that, that would explain – that. what's odd about that is it, it implies that the hacking talent comes out of the – government, uh, whereas at least in the U.S., it comes into the government through some of these uh, uh, contractors. Uh, um, how are the Israelis 
finding and integrating uh, the talented hackers uh, into uh, Unit 8200. Um, so the Israeli government was, I think, one of the, was the leading thinker about this many decades ago already. There was a book that came out now two years ago that discussed the specific program called Telpiet, which was set up to find the smartest of the smartest within the uh, Israeli high school population, essentially, just about as they were to go into the service. And those were identified, and essentially the the leading intelligence units who were at the time starting to think about cyber got first pick at these students. So they were very much ahead of the curve. This program was created, I believe, in the 1970s, if I remember correctly. And then over the next two or three decades, really, I think, started to pay off. And you now see several of the largest Israeli companies, cybersecurity companies that were founded by alumni of this uh, of this program. Um, and the, the Israeli government has been very smart and deliberate by identi- identifying the smartest people and then strategically allocating to the units where I think the Israeli military thought that these are emerging technologies where we need very smart people to help us think through them, to help us develop new capabilities. Um, and now Israel is one of the leading cyber powers. So um, we're running low on time, so I want to give you a chance, uh, and I should repeat, this is Cyber Mercenaries, The State, Hackers, and Power uh, by Tim Moore, uh, and it's available on Amazon, I'm sure, from Cambridge University Press. Uh, um, looking at what's happening with cyber proxies and the ways in which people, in which governments relate to their proxies, uh, where are the opportunities, where are the risks for U.S. policy? Uh, What should we be trying to do now that we can see what's happening in this field and the, the power that it gives a lot of traditionally less powerful actors? Yeah, so I think there's been an emerging consensus in the last few years that hackers have been able to do their business without really fearing that they will get punished for their malicious uh, activity. The new White House is very interested in trying to increase um, the, the the cost they impose and, and trying to um, – to punish the, the very hackers, and I think it's it's really important to pay to also pay attention to non-state hackers. Um, the previous administration tried to do a lot of things on cybersecurity. I think one area that was clearly not uh, one of the top priorities was law enforcement and capacity building, mm-hmm. and trying to really work with other countries and their law enforcement agencies, which ultimately, when it comes to non-state actors, are incredibly important, um, and to work with other countries to help them build capacity so we can detect. When hackers are operating from, don't you think that is an opportunity? Though I mean, I understand we haven't done it very well, but uh, if you've got the North Koreans doing hacking out of Thailand and Malaysia, and the Chinese sending people to Kenya to do their hacking, which I I find pretty weird, um, that there's a better chance that we'll be able to actually intercept and um, uh, arrest and punish uh, the hackers that the governments are using in these third countries. True. Um, as long as we can make sure that we know that they're there, right? And, and I well, think how, hard, how hard can, can that be, right? You know where the attacks are coming from if you've got decent intelligence, and attribution gets better every year. For the U.S. government, I would slightly push back on, on that. I think attribution capabilities are highly asymmetric and even – Good. <laughs> um, and that if we look specifically at some countries – like, for example, again, when I was in Kiev, people there told me that you had a, a, this migration of security researchers and hackers from Eastern Europe to Southeast Asia because they wanted to get away from the FSB and they didn't want to have to worry all the time about getting a narco the door from the FSB. And we know that there have been a lot of arrests in the region, but that was also after we spent a lot of time and resources helping governments in the region to have the capability to detect them and to then arrest them. There are a lot of countries where if you look at our map of extradition treaties, uh, MLA processes, there are a lot of black spots and uh, potential safe havens. In there, are other, there are other alternatives in those black spots. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I guess I, I, I will close by making an ideological point that uh, long-time listeners will not be surprised by. Uh, um, when I talk about empowering victims to do more outside their network, uh, there's all this whiny uh, 
goo-goo objection that, oh, my God, you know, you could have uh, it get out of control and uh, people won't know whether their attacks are coming from the government or the private sector and some private guy could start a war. We're already in that world, aren't we? You know more than I do in this space. Well, wait, 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 wait. Your, your book says there are proxies operating with only the sure. loosest of guidance, yes, and yet somehow they haven't started wars. Uh, uh, the U.S. has more control over uh, uh, the uh, use of these tools than most of the users of proxies. If the government allowed more leeway for victims of crime to investigate who was attacking them, even by going outside of their network, the likelihood that that would be misunderstood compared to the idea of having 75 hackers in Kenya doing China's bidding strikes me as uh, a a peculiar objection uh, on policy grounds to giving the victims more leeway. I'm not going to endorse <laughs> hacking back on, on, on this podcast now, especially since it's the 200th podcast. Um, um, that would be quite a feast for it. Um, but um, just I think you're absolutely – there are so many opportunities, I think, for how we can nudge states in this direction where the fact that you have governments now who've been doing this for two or three decades, there are also lessons learned and best practices here. Like what are we willing to delegate to our contractors? How do we define inherently governmental functions and where do we draw the line? Back before the 2003 Iraq War, the U.S. government issued a statement reminding patriotic hackers that the U.S. government uh, does not uh, condone this uh, kind of activity. And you had the Chinese government do similar uh, actions to rein their hackers in. So I think there is an emerging um, uh, collection of best practices for if states are serious about tightening the, the grip on their non-state hackers, they can actually do so. All right. Uh, Tim Moore, uh, thank you. Uh, that's... Uh uh, Cyber Mercenaries, the State Hackers and Power, right? Uh, also thanks to Meredith Rathbone and Nick Weaver for the, their participation in the uh, uh, no, news roundup. This has been episode 200 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Tim, do you have any events or uh, papers that you'll be releasing beyond the book? Uh, are you going to be doing some uh, um, speeches about the topics in the book? Yes, we'll actually be hosting an event on February 8th at the Carnegie Endowment from 4.30 until 5.30 p.m. with Ellen Nakashima from the Washington Post, who will moderate a discussion between me and Eric Rosenbach, the former chief of staff to Secretary of Defense Ash Carter and now co-director of the Bill. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, uh, Ellen is a terrific guest, uh, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to uh, – I'll see if I can get over there. It'll be fun to to come by. And Uh, all of your listeners are invited as well. Absolutely, absolutely. well, I, uh, so uh, if if you have suggestions for other speakers, uh, please do send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, coming up, we're going to have Susan Landau uh, uh, talking about her latest book, Listening in Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Um, and uh, if I had to guess, if I agree with Tim on 80% of the things that he has written, uh, uh, we're going to have trouble finding 10% of the things that Susan has written that, uh, to agree on. Uh, uh, so it should be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> please uh, uh, join us uh, for that uh, episode and others as we provide insights once again into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.